Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm just going to say one sentence of welcome as head of the Department of Media and Communications to welcome you to this uh, uh, Department of Media and Communication event as part of the LSE Literary Festival um, on the making of bestsellers. I don't know how many uh, uh, hopeful bestseller writers there are in the audience. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to this evening's event. And I would like to introduce the chair for the event, who is Liz Chapman, um, our director of library services at LSE. Um, again, a very um, appropriate person, I think, to um, introduce a session on books, bestsellers, um, and perhaps otherwise. So Liz, if I can give the floor to you. Thank you. Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, good evening, good to see so many people here. Uh, we're apparently working on the idea of having a standing ovation at the end, so if you could save that up for the end. Um, it is my happy task to inter, uh, introduce the two speakers. Um, obviously I work in an area that has a different kind of bestseller than we're going to talk about this evening. Um, so we're not necessarily talking about academic books, but we are talking about major trade publishing. So John, who is here on my left, is going to speak first. He's a, if you've read the blurb, some of it you'll know, he's Professor of Sociology at Cambridge. And for the last 10 years, he's been working on researching the changing nature of publishing, book publishing in the UK and in the US. Um, Books in the Digital Age, uh, a previous book of his which dealt more with the academic arena, but this evening he's going to talk about Merchants of Culture which is the black book I have in front of me sitting on the table and which you can buy copies of later, I gather. So this is the first major study of the world of trade publishing for more than 30 years. And it has to be said, at least as a librarian I know, that the world of publishing is one of turbulence at the moment. Um, you know, borders into Chapter 11 this very week. It's, it is a, a big concern and something we must uh, think about. So I'm very pleased to welcome John. But before I let him speak, I'd like to also uh, introduce Andrew Franklin so that you know and we don't have to have a break to introduce him. Andrew's going to respond uh, to John's talk. He's the founder and managing director of Profile Books, which is one of Britain's leading independent publishers. And there are supposed to be two of his interns in the audience. They've turned up. Good. That's good. Okay. Because otherwise we were going to have to mention them. Um, so his authors at Profile include Alan Bennett, um, Susie Orbach, and Lynn Truss, whose book Eat, Shoots, and Leaves sold over 1.4 million copies. So I think he knows something about bestsellers. Um, in 2007, Profile acquired another publisher, Serpent's Tale, and they published Lionel Shriver's We Need to Talk About Kevin, sales of which approach one million copies. So uh, there's a lot there to do with uh, bestsellers, and without further ado, I would like to ask John to speak with us. Well, thank you very much uh, to the Department of Media and Communications and to the LSE for inviting me and all of you for coming. Um, I should say straight away that some of you may be disappointed because you may have come along here in the hope that you will give you tips on how to write a bestseller and make a fortune, take early retirement, uh, and if that's your expectation, you might be a little disappointed because I'm not going to be giving you tips on how to write a bestseller. I'm going to be talking about the world that makes bestsellers possible. This is a world that all of you will know something about. You've all browsed in Waterstones. You all have heard something about uh, those long lunches and extravagant advances. 
you'll all know bestsellers. You have read some. Uh, you will have uh, read reviews of them, so you'll all be familiar with them. But you will probably know very little about the world that makes these books possible. You'll know very little about this world of trade publishing. In fact, even if you're a writer or an aspiring writer, you'll probably know very little about how this world actually works. It's a very mysterious world. It's, 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 it's shrouded in mystery. It's, it's very difficult to understand really how they do what they do. And this is the world that I want to try to make sense of this evening. Now, I've been told I can talk for 25 minutes, so I'm going to have to go at a rather brisk pace, and it means that all the interesting stuff is going to get left out. I'm sorry about that. But I'll go as quickly as I can. Before I go any further, let's start by asking, what is a bestseller? Well, there's one, Randy Pausch, The Last Lecture. Some of you may have read it, probably most of you haven't. Many of you may never even have heard about it. But believe me, it was a bestseller. Now, let's just wind the clock back a little bit. Let's go back three years or so, back to autumn 2007. Suppose you're a social scientist trying to make sense of this mysterious world of trade publishing. And you're doing research in New York, you're talking to a lot of people in the business, and someone starts telling you a little bit about this new proposal for a book by Randy Pausch called The Last Lecture. Who's Randy Pausch? You have never heard of this person. So you ask, they tell you. Randy Pausch was a computer, was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University and a specialist in computer human interfaces. Never written a book before, just written various technical articles. But then in 2007, his life took an unusual turn. He was asked to give the last lecture in a series called The Last Lecture at Carnegie Mellon. This was a series in which professors were asked to come and distill pearls of wisdom to pass on to students as if it were their last lecture. Now, by a tragic twist of fate, this almost certainly was Randy Pausch's last lecture because he was dying of pancreatic cancer he decided to give the lecture. It was, by all accounts, a very inspiring occasion. There was a journalist there named Jeff Zaslow from the Wall Street Journal. And he went along, and he was very moved, like many other people in the lecture, and he wrote a little column in the Wall Street Journal. The next day, uh, ABC's Good Morning America saw this, invited him on the, uh, on the Good Morning America program. Oprah Winfrey Scout saw it, invited him on the Oprah Winfrey program. And by this time, New York publishers were beginning to sort of pick up that this was quite interesting. They started to write to him, would you write a book? He said, okay, I'll write a book if Jeff Zaslow is involved. Jeff Zaslow got in touch with his agent, and the agent helped to put together a proposal for a short little book, 200 pages. They submitted a proposal of 15 pages out to the publishing houses in New York and asked who was interested, whether they would pay in advance, what would it be? So in about Four or five weeks' time, they sold this project on the basis of a 15-page proposal, a book to be written by a professor of computer science who'd never written a book before. So, how much did they sell it for? You might be thinking, oh, maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. That would be amazing. A lot of money. In fact, they sold it for $6.7 million. A huge amount of money. Bizarre. Strange. Who would pay $6.7 million? for this book that was going to be written by a professor of computer science who'd never written a book before. Seems bizarre. How can we make sense of it? Well, that's a question we have to try to answer now. So let's make a detour. Let's go back. 
Let's try to understand something about how this industry, this world, has come to be what it is. So we'll go back 30, 40 years, and we'll try to reconstruct how this world, this business of trade publishing, has changed and become what it is today. So, to cut a long story short, there were basically three key developments that shaped the modern publishing industry as we know today. And I'm talking now about trade publishing, not academic publishing, but trade publishing. Three key developments. This is what I'm going to call the logic of the field, right? It's what structures the industry. The first thing was the growth of the retail chains. If you go back into the early part of the 20th century, then books were sold essentially in either small independent bookstores or in a variety of general retail outlets like newsagents, drugstores, or um, department stores like Macy's in the United States. That's how books were sold. But from the late 1960s on, it all began to change. First was the rise of the mall stores in the United States, like B. Dalton and Walden Books, and then in the 1980s, the rise of the retail, the book superstore retail chains, like Borders and Barnes and & Noble, and here in the UK, the equivalents were Waterstones, Dillons, and so on. These book superstore retail chains completely transformed the landscape of the book. First of all, they drove many of the small independent booksellers to the wall. They simply couldn't compete against these big retail chains. But more importantly in that, than that, they brought about what we could call the hardback revolution in publishing. You've all heard about the paperback revolution. This was invented by people like Alan Lane and Penguin back in the 1930s. But what happened with the, retail, the rise of the retail chains in the 1980s and 90s is that the hardback and the hardback revolution eclipsed the paperback revolution. Now it was possible to sell hardbacks in the millions in a way that had simply not been possible before. Back in the 1970s, if a hardback sold 500,000 copies, it would be extraordinary. In the early 2000s, you take a book like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, published in 2003, it sold 18 million in hardcover in the United States alone. That's the hardback revolution. And it turned the finances of the industry upside down. Whereas in the past, in the early part, in the, from the 1930s to the 1960s, the financial foundation of the industry was the paperback. From the 1980s on, the financial foundation became the hardback, the hardback revolution. The second key change was the rise of literary agents. An extraordinary phenomenon. Extraordinary. <coughs> they were invented in the late 19th century. Here in London, first literary agent is reputed to have been A.P. Watt, a Scotsman, who began representing a friend of his to publishers here in London in the 1870s. And for about a century, the world of literary agents continued more or less in the way that A.P. Watt had begun. But in the, 80, in the 1980s and 1990s, it changed. And it changed, this change is what we could call the rise of the superagent. The superagents were agents who came into the world of publishing from outside of publishing, mainly from, they were lawyers or something like that. They came into publishing from outside the field. And they didn't have that same sort of cozy understanding of the world of publishing that the earlier literary agents had had. They were aggressive, they were assertive. They saw their role not as intermediaries mediating between authors on the one hand and publishers on the other. They saw their role as advocates of their author's interests. 
and they were aggressive. They wanted big advances. They wanted better terms. And they didn't worry about whether they, whether they offended publishers or anyone else. They pursued their author's interests in an unrelenting fashion, in a rather aggressive fashion, disrupting the traditional patterns of the field. The third key development was the emergence of the publishing corporations. Of course, you'll all be familiar with this in many ways. You may think there are lots of different publishing houses around today, and of course there are lots of different publishing houses, but probably nowhere near as many as you think. All those famous publishing houses like Penguin or Knopf in the United States, uh, uh, Jonathan Cape here in the UK, these have long ceased to be independent publishing houses. A process began in the 1960s whereby these publishing houses were bought up by large corporations. And today, there are four or five large publishing corporations in the UK and four or five in the US. For the most part, they are exactly the same corporations. They control a very large share of trade publishing. The top four publishing corporations in the UK account for about half of all trade retail sales in the UK. So these are very powerful organizations. Now, there are many other smaller publishing houses like Profile and others, but the large publishing corporations are top, are dominant players in the field. So those are the three key developments which have shaped this world of trade publishing. So how did they change this world? Now, the consequence, there were many different consequences, and I don't have time to talk about them all now. I don't have much time at all, so I'm just going to focus on one key transformation that was produced by these three developments. And this is what I'm going to call the preoccupation with big books. In fact, big books is a rather technical term used a lot by publishers themselves. They always constantly speak about big books. They are obsessed with big books. Ask Andrew, he'll tell you later, I'm sure. Why? Why are they so preoccupied with big books? Well, to understand this, you have to see that there is a fundamental tension at the heart of the large publishing corporation. A fundamental difficulty that they face. And the difficulty is this. On the one hand, they have to achieve good levels of growth and profitability, about 10% a year, roughly speaking. Very roughly. On the other hand, the market for books is largely static. So, the this is what we could call the growth conundrum. How do you achieve growth in a static market? Big problem. And they all face it. They have to grow, but the market's static. So how do you do it? You might think, ah, oh, easy. You don't need an MBA to figure this one out. All you need to do is publish more books. Bad answer. It doesn't work. They tried it. It doesn't work. Why not? Remember how they got big. They got big by buying up lots of other companies, consolidating them. So now their sales forces are absolutely overloaded. So if you look like a big, at a big corporation like Random House in the United States, it's publishing already about 6,000 new titles every year. You can't give them more to publish. Those poor sales reps couldn't cope. So publishing more books isn't going to solve the problem. So how do you do it? Well, in fact, the answer that they all came up with is you do exactly the opposite. Publish fewer books. They concentrate on those that will sell a lot of copies. And those are what they called the big books. So you cut out 
what is known as mid-list titles, that is, those that are just ticking over, not studying very well, and you focus your attention on the big books, which get more of your marketing resource, you push them harder and harder. So, in short, you, you, the aim is to maximize your sales on a smaller number of books. That's the golden rule of all large publishing corporations. So, what are big books exactly? more difficult than you might think. Big books are not bestsellers. They're not bestsellers. They can't be bestsellers because they're big before they're even published. Randy Pausch's book was big when it was a 15-page proposal. They paid 6.7 million for it. That's big. But it wasn't published. So what is a big book? A big book is a hoped-for bestseller. And that's the difference is crucial because it exists as a big book before it's published. So it exists before anyone knows how well it's actually going to sell. Apart from books by brand name authors like Stephen King and so on, for the most part, no one really knows how well these books are going to do. So they exist in this space of hope. They are hoped for. They are nourished by hope and expectation. And therefore, there is a large space in this world of publishing for what we could call buzz. And again, buzz, if you'll excuse me, is a technical term. Buzz is talk about books which could be big. It's similar to hype, but subtly different. Hype is the talking up of books by individuals who have an interest in talking them up, like agents. Buzz happens when the recipients of hype respond with affirmative talk backed up by money. <laughs> so what you have at the heart of trade publishing is what we could call the web of collective belief. Since for many of these new books that are published, no one really knows how well they're going to do, a great deal of time and effort is invested in trying to persuade others that they really are big. That's why you have all those long lunches in trade publishing. That's what's happening. They are weaving the web of collective belief. They are sitting around, talking with one another, trying to persuade one another that what they have is a big book or at least sufficiently big to warrant a serious degree of attention. And a great deal of weight is placed on what other people, especially trusted others, say about books that they think are big. In the absence of anything solid, nothing is more persuasive than the expressed enthusiasm of trusted others. So if you're an editor or a publisher at one of these houses, how do you form a view about how big a book is, about how much you should pay for it, when there are so few anchor points? How do you determine the indeterminate? value the valueless. After all, that 15-page proposal from, from Randy Pausch had no value as such. How do you put a value? How do you put a price tag on it? Well, of course, you've got to use your judgment. That's what you're paid for. But there are a few other helpful things you can draw on. First, and really important in this business, is track record. Absolutely critical. You look at the track record of the author. If the author's published any books at all before, it's all publicly available now, thanks to Nielsen BookScan data. 
which tracks the sales through the cash registers of all the major retail outlets. And so you know exactly how many copies the author's previous book sold. Therefore, nothing is hidden anymore. And it's difficult to overestimate the significance of this. Publishers are slaves to these numbers, constantly checking them. And authors carry their sales history around their necks like a noose. <laughs> of course, if the first book does really well, you're going to be in great shape. If it was the kite runner, wow, you're in great shape. But if your first book flopped, you're in trouble. You're going to find it very difficult to persuade anyone to take your next book seriously. So you might think, where does this leave the first-time author? Some of you might be aspiring first-time authors, and you might think, now, forget it. I might as well not even start. How could I possibly succeed in a world obsessed with numbers when I have none? Well, in fact, you're in a great position because the absence of a track record is perfect. It's perfect. There is nothing to dampen down the imagination of a publisher drinking too much wine. They can think you might be the next Dan Brown. The absence of sales figures sets the imagination free. So the first time author is in a great position. However, if you publish that book and it doesn't do very well, you're in trouble. Second, comps, crucial. This is a business, this is an industry that doesn't do market research. Just doesn't do it. But it has comps, comparable books. So there are a very complex array of rules in this dance, this delicate dance between agents and publishers that, just, that, that shape how one chooses one's comparable title. Absolutely correct. This book is like The Kite Runner, but subtly different. Wow, The Kite Runner, fantastic. Look that up, that sold really well. That's gonna be great. So you choose your comps very carefully. That's the second thing. Third is platform. Now you might think, wow, what's platform? What is platform? Platform is basically the position from which the author speaks. Every author is going to have some kind of platform, some bigger than others. Now, if you were um, Tony Blair or Jamie Oliver or Cheryl Cole, you'd have a great platform because a lot of people know who you are. You're in the media a lot. You bring, a you bring an audience to your book and the, and the publisher can leverage it. So platform is absolutely crucial. So-called celebrity publishing is just an extension of the importance of platform in the world of trade publishing. An author that comes with a big platform, like a politician, Tony Blair, somebody in the media all the time, Jamie Oliver, whatever, is in a very strong position in this business. Fourth, and in some ways the most important thing, is the web of collective belief. What other people think. Making these judgment calls is very risky, very difficult when the stakes are high. So you want to know what other people think. So you ask your colleagues down the corridor. You ask the sales and marketing people. And of course you rely very heavily on what the agent thinks. You place a lot of weight on that and on who the agent is because agents themselves have track records. Some are very good at picking bestsellers and picking successful books and that gives them more weight 
in this web of collective belief. People are more inclined to believe them. And the reliance on the judgments of others also helps you to understand why auctions play such an important role in this business. Of course, auctions help to raise the stakes in terms of advances, but they are much more than that because they also function as very effective devices for eliciting and consolidating the web of collective belief. After all, what happens in an auction? You're constantly seeing what other people think it's worth. So you put in, you know, 20,000 pounds, and the agent comes out and says, well, that's, that's all right, but I've had an offer for 100,000. 100,000? Wow, I must have got that wrong. Okay, go back and consult with my colleagues. We'll come back at 150,000. Well, that's very good, but you know I've had an offer for 500,000. Oh, really? So you revise constantly your judgment about the value of this valueless object that has no price tag on it. So the auction, in short, is not only a wonderful, concise me economic mechanism for raising the stakes, it's also a symbolic mechanism for generating the web of collective belief. Okay, so now we understand a little bit about how this business works. Let's now see if it can help us to understand something like Randy Pausch in the last lecture. So, why would a publisher be willing to pay 6.7 million for a 15-page proposal for a book by a man who had never written a book before? Seems bizarre. The fact that Pausch is a first-time author is not a limitation, it plays in his favor because there is no track record of disappointing sales. There's also a very good comp or comparable title, Tuesdays with Maury, a book published in the 1990s that sold 12 million copies. Wow, that's great. And in fact, Jeff Zaslow's agent is exactly the same person who is the agent for Mitch Album. So he knows all about this. He can really write that story of the comp really, really well. Randy Pausch was not a celebrity, but he had a pretty good platform because he'd been on Good Morning America, he'd been on Oprah Winfrey, that wonderful judge of taste in America, <laughs> and a little video of his lecture had been put up on YouTube, which you can see if you search, you just go onto the web tonight, type in uh, Last lecture, Randy Pausch, you'll get it. There it is. It's still there up on YouTube. And, and about six million people had watched that. Wow, this is a good platform. So this guy had a platform. And just as importantly, there was a great deal of buzz about this book. Everyone was talking about it in autumn 2007. That's how I heard about it. I was talking to these people. They were all talking about it. Buzz. That was buzz. Everyone was talking about it. Wow, hot book. And this was generating the web of collective belief that this book would become a bestseller and constantly raise the stakes up and up and up again. By the time the stakes reached $5 million, it started out much lower, down in the low six digits, about 100,000, 200,000. By the time it reached $5 million, there were only the only publishers left in were those publishers owned by the large corporations because only they could afford to play at this level of risk. In the end, it was bought by Hyperion, which is the publishing wing of the Disney Corporation. Now, they were really convinced they wanted to get the book because they had published Mitch Elbin before, they knew the genre well, the comp worked beautifully, and they were sold on it. 
So they paid 6.7 million. When they paid that in October 2007, it was, really was a very high-risk strategy. It could have gone wrong. I mean, Randy Parsh might not even have lived to finish the book. It really could have gone badly wrong on him. But as it turned out, it paid off handsomely. It went well. They published it in April 2008, went straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for 85 weeks. 85 weeks? Sold by the end of the year, it had sold more than 4 million copies in hardcover and was still selling 50,000 copies a week. And moreover, because there was so much buzz about this book, Hyperion managed to sell the rights into 47 different languages around the world. The Koreans themselves paid $300,000 for this. So they really did make it work. So betting on big books by authors with no track record is a very risky process. Remember, it's a big book, but it wasn't then a bestseller. But in this case, it paid off handsomely. So I've tried to give you some sense of how this business works. We don't have much time left. I'm keeping an eye on the time. And I just want to say that, first of all, drawing this to a conclusion, that, of course, what I've said now doesn't apply to all the publishers in this field of trade publishing. This applies primarily to the largest players. The small independent presses like Profile may not be subjected to the same kind of pressures as they are, but they won't be unaffected by these considerations. We're interested to see what Andrew has to say about that. The second thing to say is that this set of pressures applies both to Britain and to the United States, although in subtly different ways. Because in Britain, we have a somewhat different situation here. What one sale, American sales uh, director called, called Britain famously for me, the Wild West. And it is truly the Wild West. There used to be something called the Netbook Agreement that regulated prices, created fixed prices for books, but that that um, fell apart in the middle of the 1990s. And after that, it's really a free-for-all. Books can be priced at any level that, they, that the retailer wants to price it at, and there is no constraint on that process, apart from how much money they want to lose or how much discount they can get from the publisher. And the result is that there's an enormous amount of pressure in the UK to push, to, to give higher and higher discounts to retailers, especially to the very big retailers like the supermarkets who became more interested in books precisely because they could now, after the demise of the Network Agreement, um, they, could, they could compete on price in a way that they couldn't compete on price before. So now Tesco's and Sainsbury's and Asda become key players in the book retail market in the UK. And so these pressures that I've analyzed for you play out in the UK and the US in slightly different ways like this. In both of these worlds, as it were, in the UK and the US, Publishers find themselves in the middle, under pressure. Their margins are under pressure, but for differing reasons. In the UK, they're under pressure because of the escalating discounts that are requested and demanded by the large retailers like Tesco's and Asda. And in the US, they're under pressure because the super agents are so powerful that they demand higher and higher advances, and this puts margins under pressure. This also helps you to understand some of the rather striking differences between bestseller lists in the UK and the US. The bestseller lists in the UK, especially for hardbacks, are heavily shaped by what the supermarkets like Tesco's can sell. They are the makers of the bestseller list, essentially, in hardback. Hence, the bestseller lists in the UK tend to be dominated by cookbooks, by celebrity biographies, and so-called memory mem memoirs, 
or, or sorry, misery memoirs, um, and also by, of course, in the case of fiction, by brand name um, commercial fiction like Stephen King uh, um, and, and, and others of that kind, because these are the books the supermarkets can sell in very large quantities. Let me now draw this to a close by just saying that the industry finds itself at a critical juncture today. Essentially, the outcome of two processes. On the one hand, what I've been analyzing for you, this is the core dynamic of the world of trade publishing. These processes have unfolded and shaped the industry today. And on the other hand, the digital revolution, which is beginning to make inroads in publishing in the way that it has done in other sectors of the creative industries. We don't have time to talk about this in detail. I'm sure you want to ask questions. But let me just close with one slide that shows you vividly the significance of this. This shows you US trade wholesale ebook sales from 2002 to 2010. You see, after 2006, they were negligible. Negligible. Less, well under 1% of publishers' revenues up to 2006. But after that, with the release of the Sony ebook reader and then the Kindle in 2007, they really began to grow. So that by today, for most trade publishers in the United States, ebook sales represent somewhere just under 10% of their sales. It's dramatic growth in a very, very short period of time, in a couple of years. So these two crucial, fundamental sets of developments, the socioeconomic transformations I've talked about, and now the digital revolution, are coming together to produce the turbulence in the industry that we see today. And so the filing for chapter, for, for chapter 11 by Borders is the illustration of how these two sets of processes are working them, themselves out in practical terms. The industry faces a critical turning point now. It's at a critical juncture as these two sets of processes come together and work their way through the industry. What will the future be? No one really knows, but it will be a future built upon the processes that I've been describing for you this evening. That's a good place to stop. That's great. Thank you very much. Your questions. We'll give you some time for questions, but Andrew's going to respond first. Uh, just two, two remarks to start with. First, that John's book is very uh, entertaining. Like all great works of fiction, it has a strong narrative, <laughs> it's full of lively characters, and uh, it goes at a cracking pace. And secondly, I should say that um, all the characters are anonymous, but he did interview me, and reading it, I tried to work out where I was in it. Secondly, before setting up uh, Profile, I worked at Penguin for 11 years. So I have a strong consciousness of the pressures on the large corporations. We have, according to uh, John and his entertaining book, we're here at Doomsday. The last of you should turn out the lights. We'll go and live in hovels. Some of you will remember when there was a, an encampment of the homeless in Lincoln's Inn Field. That's going to be filled with publishers, and they'll be fed by, by generous authors looking after their well-being. It's not like that at all. Last year, 2010, Penguin Books, my old employer, had their best year ever. We're in the, uh, a stark recession in the UK. This is a global recession caused not by writers or academics or authors. It's caused by bankers. Last year, the UK economy fell, I think, didn't it, by about 2 2.5%. Book sales dropped by 1.25%. So book sales are absolutely solid. Clearly, the trend towards e-books is very disruptive. It's also very exciting. But this huge growth is people buying books. They're buying things to read on their e-book readers. I've got my Kindle in my briefcase somewhere. 
We all read now, a lot of us read now on e-books uh, e and we read physical books. This is a challenge that writers and publishers can, can both um, rise to and it's not, this is not the end game. We're not arriving at the, at the end of books. Publishing is not a world shrouded in mystery. None of us, I've never met a Freemason in publishing in my life <laughs> and uh, the lunches are partly because Publishing is very long hours. You work a day in the office doing the things that people do in offices, you know, sending emails, having endless pointless meetings, all that stuff you do. And then you go home and you read for hours in the evening. So it's quite nice in the middle of the day to have a break and have lunch. It's very, <laughs> very congenial. I guess some of you guys have lunch too. So, so that's pretty straightforward. There is no mystery. We're not slaves. You're wonderfully emotive word. And there's no noose around our neck. Publishing is really simple. Authors write books. Readers want to read them. How do you get the book from the, the manuscript, from the author, to the reader? You have middlemen, those middle women mostly. There's more women than men in publishing. These middle women are called publishers. And uh, if you're an economist or a sociologist, you talk about a value chain. And there are now these things called agents as well. So there's a writer, then there are agents. They take 15%, by the way. Then there are publishers. They take a very modest 35 or 40%. <laughs> and then there's... Then there's the booksellers who take 50 or 55%, or in the case of the supermarket, 60%. And then don't forget, when they can't sell the book, the buggers send it back again. <laughs> so, so it's really, it is a very straightforward thing. And all that we have to do is identify the best possible books that we can find to publish, and then publish them in the best possible way so they meet as many readers as possible. And that's really all there is. And John's book is nearly 400 pages, and I've told you everything that's in it in one, <laughs> one sentence. <laughs> if you're all thinking of becoming publishers, I recommend it. It's a very congenial job, and the lunches can be really good. But, <laughs> but the hours are long, and um, not all authors are congenial. Um, but... Uh, I forgot what I was going to say now. The great, I know, the market. What dis differentiates publishers from librarians? P librarians are people who like books but are useless at business. Publishers are people who like books and are good at business because if they're not in business, they go out of business and then they have to become librarians. <laughs> Incidentally, a surprising, number, a surprising number of publishers go on and become authors but... Uh, sorry, a surprising number of authors choose to come into publishing, but very few publishers ever go on and become authors, and I wonder why, why that might be. Um, it is true that publishers are under constant pressure from agents who want more money and from booksellers who want more money, but it is thus in every business. If you were an arms manufacturer selling arms to some vile despotic regime somewhere, you would be under constant pressure to pay bigger bribes to the people it is who will sell the arms and from other people who are taking, taking part of the... The, the slice of cake which is the same cake this is a standard feature of all business whatever business you're in whether it's whether it's a say arms manufacturing or selling cars there are always people who are struggling to get more than their fair share and the publisher's share is is modest in the extreme and they're benign generous people who look after the <laughs> the well-being of their authors with with great um, generosity and care and should they ever slip up and fail to do their utmost for their authors they do have their vigilante authors to protect, agents to protect their, their interests, who are also doing it for a very modest 15% um, of the cake. What you really want to know, of course, is how to write a bestseller. And um, one of the things that John said, which is really interesting, is that the best thing to do is to be dead. Um, Randy, Randy Pash must now be dead, mustn't he? 
It's a very, very good... It's not just true of authors, by the way. You know, if you're in the music industry, if you're um, uh, a great actor, there are many, many careers for which the best thing you can possibly do is die. What, is, what has been the most successful book in the UK, in the US, and around uh, almost every country in Europe the last year? Uh, it's a series of three... Um, uh, well, you know what he did. They need to go any further. What did the author do to make them such a success? He died in Sweden. Great career move. <laughs> No platform, he was dead, no, no positioning, he was dead. And in fact, it was just a punt by a publisher, a very brilliant publisher, independent publisher, uh, who likes publishing books that he, he can't read. So if they're in Swedish, this is a terrific start. You don't, even, you don't even have to form a literary judgment. I prefer to publish books in English because you can then at least, at least form a judgment. The truth about publishing is this. You've got to get it right more than you get it wrong. We are all going to publish spectacular failures, and John could have talked about the huge advances paid by some of the big publishing corporations, which then go on and sell nuggetry numbers. I had no, oh, sorry, I had no recollection. I pressed a button. Had no recollection at all of that. Um, that book. I must say, I turned down the Tuesdays with Maury. Has anybody read it here? Is anybody a friend of Maury? It's the most terrible book. It's absolutely. <laughs> Did you read it? Yeah. It's rebarbative woo-woo. It really is. It's just... It's the most... No and you can see exactly why it was successful. It was very sentimental. The agent in the UK, he died tragically earlier this year, was a great friend of mine, and um, my publishing wasn't going very well, and he kept on saying, you must buy this book, you must buy this book, it'll be a bestseller. And I kept saying, I can't bear to, I can't bear to. Was that a good or a bad decision? I don't know, but I didn't. And Randy Pouch, same thing, but he did, he did the right thing, and he... He died. Seriously, if you want to write a bestseller, <laughs> if you want to write a bestseller, you've got to write a good book. Or that, either that or be a celebrity, in which case you can get somebody else to write it for you. There's no evidence that Katie Price can read at all, but she still, <laughs> let alone write, she still goes to number one on the, the bestseller list. Are you telling me to get off the stage? <laughs> no, I, don't, I haven't got any time to show Okay. Yeah, yeah, things fine. No, Maybe it's time for me to leave the stage. The serious point about publishing is that you, it's, like, it's like any of these other things. It's like the film industry, it's like the music industry. It, we all have to take risks all the time. If you're in the music industry, uh, sorry, if you're in the film industry, the risk that you take if you're a Hollywood studio is somewhere between 25 and $100 million every single film you make. You get it wrong, and your whole studio is in the most terrible difficulties. In book publishing, you gave the interesting example of Random House, you make 6,000 goes a year, and some of those will be right and some will be wrong. And all you've got to do with those 6,000, or in my case on our Serpent's Tail list, 24 books a year, you've only got 12 rights, or 13 right and 11 wrong, and you're going to stay in business. Get it the other way around, wrong, and you'll get it out of business. The secret about big books is that, on the whole, they're good books of their category. And if you look at the bestseller list now, it is, on the whole really a depressing list, because it is true, it is filled with celebrity and mass market fiction. But if you look at the bestseller list from 30 or 40 years ago, when they first started, they were the same awful, awful books. They were celebrities, and they were terrible fiction, and lots of sports books 40 years ago. It's quite interesting. You know, mass culture doesn't actually change terribly rapidly, and mass culture is going to be what is represented in the bestseller list. Supermarkets aren't stupid. They sell what their consumers want to read, and if you want to read other books, you've got to go to other bookshops. The really interesting thing for me about bestsellers is that so many of them, best ones, like Tuesdays with Morrie, come from nowhere and nobody expects them to be a success. And this is true of 
dead Swedes. It's true of all of the successes, the biggest successes that we've had. If you take, for example, we need to talk about Kevin, amazing novel by Lionel Shriver. That was her seventh or eighth novel. She had no form. Her platform was, uh, you know, was wrong. She, um, she's a tough, tough writer. And this book went on to sell. Well, it's, it's closing in on a million copies. We will have sold a million by the end of this year, I think, when the, when the film starring Tilda Swinton comes out. Um, and, and then, you know, another big success, we had Lynn Truss's book on punctuation. People said, book on punctuation will never sell. And, you know, they might have been right, but actually they were wrong. The other book that we've, series of books we sold are a series of science questions and answers that we published with the new scientist. The most successful was called Why Don't Penguins Feet Freeze? That sold 800,000 copies. Many of these books, and it's not just true for the independents, it's true for the big corporations, come from nowhere. They're completely unexpected. And in a way, that's what's most most pleasing and exciting. You publish something which you believe in, which you think is a really good book, and you're finally able to persuade somebody else of it. There's a terrific non-fiction book that was published last year, which I would have loved to be offered, but we weren't. And it was a... It's part Holocaust memoir. It's part about Netsuki. It's part about the relationship between objects and memory. It's got a terrible title. It's called Mm -hmm. The Hair with Amber Mm -hmm. Eyes. Uh, It was by a potter who'd, who'd written one book before, which was an attack on another potter, and this book, this book has gone on to become a huge best book. It sold 70,000 copies in hardback, and it's now in paperback, published by Chateau and Window. Brilliant windows, brilliant piece of publishing, but an extraordinarily good book. And at its best, publishing, when it is seriously done, is serious people, publishers, publishing good books which they really believe in and doing their best. And what they're doing is they're taking the book from the reader to the reading public, and that's, sorry, from the author to the reading public, and that's all that we have to do. Thank you. Excellent, thank you. Okay, I'm going to open up the floor now before I kill Andrew. Um, so if there are any questions from our audience, please. Or comments. Yeah. This one, halfway, halfway up on the... Please. I believe I heard that um, the, the big publishers don't do market research, they rely on comps. Um, could we have a comment on that? Sure. From the publisher? Is, is it true, and if it's true, why not? The, the thing is, if you, if you sell cigarettes and you want to change the packets a little bit and put a bit of gold foil or make the sign that says, you know, smoking will kill you a bit, you know, a different colour or something, then it's worth doing market research because you will go on and sell, you know, whatever it is, 100 million cigarettes a, a month. And, and so it's worth doing a bit of market research. If you're Random House and you're publishing 6,000 new titles and it will never be the same again, what is the point of doing market research and how would you set about doing it? And, but for me, that's, so, so the economics of it just don't work. What you're doing in publishing, you're taking lots of small risks. What you're doing when you're selling cigarettes or cars is you're taking a very small number of huge risks, so you do everything you can to mitigate the risks. We just take quite small risks comparatively as a business. But for me, the real reason we don't do market research is that the best books, the most interesting books, the most rewarding ones to publish, are not those that are the same as every other book that's been published. They're things that are different and new and open your eyes to the world in a different way to one you've seen before. And if it is new and different and fresh, how can you possibly do market research? And it's, the exact, it's, it's exactly that it's different and, and exciting and has not been done before that makes it worth publishing. 
So you two agree on that? Yeah, I think we agree with that. I, 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 I mean, I think just the, the um, you know, the, uh, just to echo with the point that, that uh, Andrew just made, I mean, I think with, with books, what many publishers are trying to do, I mean, there are two different things, really. One is that they are trying to create new markets. So doing market research on what people currently think or feel may not be the right thing. You want to create a new market. So you want to, you want to take some shots that are experimental and new with things that people haven't done before. But having said that, a great deal of the publishing that takes place um, in all publishing houses, including smaller, medium-sized, and big ones, is a kind of Me Too publishing. That is, once something is working, you continue to run with that formula over and over and over and over again. Um, so you look at something like Chicklet, for example. I mean, once it had worked, all the publishers jumped in on that and kept running that one and running with that one as much as they could. And so, you know, you get this kind of uh, repetitive publishing is very, very common, not just in publishing, but in other creative industries too. So it's very, very common. It's a, it's a further reflection of the kind of structures that I've been talking about that is the comparable title. This one is like this one. So you go and do it because you think it's going to be like that. I mean, you know, I'm sure that many of the publishing houses are looking at the success of Stieg Larsson and thinking, oh, well, you know, let's try to find some more of these, you know. Let's go trawl around in Sweden and see if we can find some more who are writing books of this kind because, you know, this is a genre that seems to be working. Um, so there's an awful lot of that that goes on in publishing. Okay, we had another question in the center there. Can you, do you need a mic? Could you hear the question that all authors have agents? Um, Is that the case? But, um, but both, both speakers yep. gave the impression that all authors naturally have agents. Yep. Mm. Did they mean to give that impression? Yes. It, well, it is, it is, <laughs> <laughs> yes, is it my is, answer, but Andrew can answer. It is, it is true that it, it would be impossible as a first-time novelist to be published without an agent. No publisher will look seriously at manuscripts submitted without an agent. And the reason is that the agent's act is a very important filter. And if you advertise, if you wanted to set up publishing and you advertise that you took unsolicited manuscripts from uh, unagented authors, you would drown in um, stuff, 99.99% of which would be rubbish. Non-fiction, it is not the case, and quite a lot of uh, academics and some, most non-fiction is, a lot of non-fiction is written by academics or, or journalists or people who have some way of making a living because it's so hard to make a living as a writer without, and some, quite a high proportion, don't have agents, but some do. Agents aren't going to be interested unless you're the, you know, if you're taking 15% of what the author is earning, unless the author is going to be getting advances in excess of you know, £10,000 a time. It's not interesting for an agent because £1,500 doesn't really represent a huge return on, on the very considerable costs and overheads of being an agent. And there are lots and lots of books which go on to be very successful and are which, or which are important in their own way where the advance is less than £10,000. So academic authors, writing academic books, almost never have an agent. Okay, I have a question halfway up there on the left with the mic. Uh, if you're a um, first-time writer and you have a manuscript well, you're aiming to write quality fiction, and you have a manuscript that's suitable for any Anglo-Saxon audience. Based on what you were talking about with the rise of the supermarkets and, and how that dominates choices about which books to, to go for, is a writer better off targeting American agents than British agents? Hmm. Um, interesting question. I think the, the, I mean, the first thing I would say to it is that 
If, if you want to write fiction of that kind, partly um, developing the point that Andrew just made, um, you do need an agent who will be able to reach into the center of the field for you and find the relevant publishers. Um, they won't take you seriously without it because the field is structured that way. You need the agent who will go in for you. Um, you know, the, the American market is, I think, a, you know, it is a different kind of market. It is a more fluid and more open market in many ways. And, um, you know, I, I, Andrew may have a different view about this, but I think the, the way that the UK market has developed over the last um, 10 to 15 years since the demise of the netbook agreement has, has constricted this market in many ways. And it's, it's, it's made it harder for the more experimental um, stuff of one kind or another. And it's, 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 it's reduced it's reduced um, many of the opportunities. And, and, and this is, a, you know, this is a, a controversial set of issues, uh, and there are many people who really strongly believe that it's better without the netbook agreement. And I, I don't disagree with that in principle, but there is a fundamental difference. What happened in the UK is that you had the demise of the netbook agreement with nothing equivalent to what in the United States they call the Robertson-Patman Act. And the Robertson-Patman Act is a piece of legislation which, which creates, to some extent, a level playing field in that you can't give one discount to one retailer and another discount to another. So you have to give the same discount structure to all retailers. And that, you know, that, that at least creates something more like a level playing field. It, it creates a little bit more of a buffer for the independent booksellers than you have here in the UK. Here is, is basically the, the strong arm of the, of the biggest retailers that carries the most weight. And, um, and so I think it's a, it's, it's a difficult market. Uh, I don't agree at all, I'm afraid. I think, you know, the, the successful publishers are making a return on investment in excess of 10%. Most of them are growing regularly. I think it's absolutely not the case that it's more difficult to have excess, uh, interesting or experimental fiction published now. The number of novels published goes up every year. There are a whole range of options that didn't exist before for self-publishing. There's all sorts of interesting collectives of, um, you know, of publishing groups. There's the whole thing which you haven't talked about at all, which is publishing directly online. Amazon is a great equaliser. You know, there's that great slogan, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. So anybody, in theory, is, is equal on, on Amazon, and every publisher has, has equal access there, and it's about 25% of the market. In, in, but turning to the question about an agent, an, agent's like, an agent is a professional advisor. So you know, if you're used to going to your doctor, you want to be actually be able to go, and you don't want a doctor in New York. And you don't want your lawyer in New York, and you don't want your you know, whatever. So, so no, you need your agent here. And all the good agents have very strong transatlantic relationships. And the agents sell very strongly. You know, you need an agent where you are, I think. Okay. Thanks. One on the, the end of the front row. Okay. Okay. I wonder if you could say a bit more about the predictability or otherwise of bestsellers. I happen to know the agent for the hair with amber eyes, and she told me it was turned down by six publishers before somebody took it. And you yourself must have been somewhat surprised by each shoots and these. But are there more and less predictable bestsellers? What can you say about it? That's for you, isn't it? I think it's, uh, I mean, th there are certain categories which are predictable, we haven't really talked about it. And they are you know, the brand name authors. And bestseller lists are dominated by brand name authors and authors with big platforms like Jamie Oliver and so on and so forth. So those kinds of bestsellers we have to leave to one side. Those are very predictable. The patterns are very, that's why, exactly why those writers 
like uh, uh, um, James Patterson and Stephen King and so on are such valuable assets for the publishing houses and they can move between publishing houses command extremely high advances because the, pay, the, Saturn, the pattern of sales is very, very predictable. Um, having said that, for, for, most, um, book, for, you know, for most books by less well-known authors or first-time authors or whatever, it, it really is very, very uncertain. The truth is no one knows. And even if a publisher, you know, after the fact says, well, I told you so, I knew that was going to be a great success, in fact, it's probably a lie. You know, they really, really don't know. And, and so, it, it, you know, serendipity plays a fundamental role in the industry. And, 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 and publishers and agents are sitting around trying to persuade one another that this is going to be the next bestseller, but it's a guess. It's a guess. And there's no way around that. They simply do not know. There's a, fa there's a famous um, story, um, which, <laughs> delightful story of, you know, one of the big publishing houses in New York, you know, after all these uh, mergers and acquisitions and brought in a, 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 a very well-known management consultancy agency to reorganize them and figure out how they were going to improve their profitability. And this agency came in and spent like two years going through everything, interviewing people, came back after that, you know, charged you know, $10 million, produced some very large report, and on the top of the report there was a little summary of their recommendations. And he said, we've considered this matter very, very carefully. We've looked at it very thoroughly and very exhaustively. And you'll see all of our evidence here in the text. And our recommendation for you to improve your profitability and make your company more viable is publish more bestsellers. <laughs> they didn't know what they were talking about. So there, there was an accusation there that you might lie. How does that <laughs> From time to time, publishers get up, they brush their teeth, and then they wash their mouth out with soap. Okay. I have another question in the middle of the front row. It's, first of all, for John. You talked about the web of collective belief, and I think you might have mentioned agents and were the publishers involved in that. If I understood that idea correctly, it's about the kind of collective generation of the buzz around the big books. I'd just be interested to hear, first of all, who else beyond agents and publishers you see as participating in that generation of the buzz. And then once John has outlined that, I'd like to hear if Andrew recognises that as a <laughs> practical phenomenon that happens within the industry. Great question. Um, I mean, for me, this was, you know, as, as, a, as a social scientist trying to make sense of this world, and I, I wish it were as simple as, as Andrew suggests. I do think it is. I think, I think it is a puzzling, bizarre, strange, weird world. And you just do not understand it. When I, and, and the story I started with uh, of Randy Pausch, I mean, was really encountering buzz for the first time. I, you know, I was a, I was a social scientist in Manhattan, and I was, had a, a, I had an appointment with a scout in Manhattan, and so I went to see the scout, and I said, okay, tell me what you do and how you do it. And so this was the interview. And in the course of the interview, she said, uh, she, you know, she just dropped in while Randy Pausch the last lecture. Whoop! Was really past the last and she was going on about it, you know, just talking and talking about this, talking about it. So scouts were participating in the buzz, you know. And so, you know, she, this, this, you, you see that this is what they are doing. They are creating a set of beliefs about what's going to work, what's big, what's important, what's hot. What is hot in New York, in London, and so on, in these metropolitan centers of Anglo-American trade publishing. They are, they are producing buzz. And this, you know, they, they, and they really don't know. They just do not know if this 
big book is a bestseller. They really don't know. And, you know, there's just no way they could know. They're just guessing. But they're creating a lot of excitement and a lot of energy, and it's very focused on a selected number of titles, not everything. So it's focused in a certain number of titles. And, and this buzz is absolutely critical in the way the industry works, because it works all the way down the line. You know, if, if a publisher ends up paying 6.7 million for this big book, even though it doesn't yet exist, when it comes, you know, to, to get that much money out of the company, you've got to get other people in the company behind it. So you've got your salespeople, you've got your publicity people, everyone right up the line is going to be behind this, because 6.7 million is a lot of money. So they're all going to be involved in the buzz, all right? And, and, and then, when the book comes in eventually, you're going to line up all of your resources behind the buzz. Because if you spend 6.7 million, you've got to redeem that bet. You've got, to, you've got to give it everything. So you pour marketing resource behind it because you've got a lot you've got to get out of it. Now, pouring marketing resource behind this big book, in inverted commas, that could or that may or may not be a bestseller means that you're diverting marketing resource from all those mid-list titles that you've basically written off. You know? So you're publishing 6,000 titles a year. 6,000. And you've got a small number of big books then you're going to have a, thousands of those titles that are going to be starved of marketing resource because you're going to mobilize your marketing resource behind the big bets that you spent a lot of money. You've got to make it work. And this is exactly what happens in large publishing houses and to some extent in small ones too. They're all involved in prioritization. I don't know what Andrew will say, but they are all involved in prioritization of one kind or another. They are putting resource behind their biggest bets. It's interesting. You have these people, they call experts, and they tell you what you know a little bit about a subject. You know, you think you can cook a bit, and then this expert comes along and says, unbelievably complicated to make a salad. You have to get these special sorts of lettuce that you can get somewhere, and you can eat this sort of... Actually, it's unbelievably easy to make a salad, and the same, I'm afraid, is true. It is not a conspiracy. It is not all that difficult. It is straightforward. And um, uh, it, it's... The fact that some books are big and require huge resources doesn't mean that others are starved. Publishing is a complicated ecosystem, and you have the huge great trees at the top, and there's some grass at the bottom, and there's some bushes and shrubs and climbers, and there's room in the sunlight on a good day for them all. Um, not every day, but it's not the case that the resources are starved of some, and that is why books can take off from the mid-list. Mid-list is an odd term. It means the books that don't sell are quite as well as we would like. They can take off and they become bestsellers. We haven't talked about the role of things like prizes, which are extraordinarily important. Things like the Booker Prize will immediately take a book from somewhere you know, low down in the thousands up into the top, top ten. You asked specifically about other people who are important in buzz. Critics, the literary critic and the literary editor used to be absolutely pivotal with the decline of newspaper uh, as, a, as a medium of influence, that has declined and what we've seen instead is the very, very interesting rise of the social media and uh, all sorts of um, different sorts of life on the internet and that's all very interesting and that's part of the, the buzz. Of course buzz is true but it's not, it is not a conspiracy made by publishers and agents and it's not solely driven by money and the interesting thing about the internet of course is it is much more democratic and so we may, I think, hope to see more surprises um, uh, in, in what makes its way to the top because there will be less possibility for control by, by a smaller number of people. Okay, I have another question then. Um, without wanting to um, push a conspiracy theory, I'd be interested in what you both think about the notion that 
there is a kind of narrowing of ideas going on. And let me be a bit more specific about this. Granta published online two quite grim but amusing little pieces of writing, which was how to write a novel about Africa and how to write a novel about Pakistan. You may well have seen it. It, it generated a lot of buzz in its own right, because basically if you have a baobab tree, a starving child, a hot sun, and a cloud coming around, you might well get published as an African writer. And in Pakistan, if there's a terrorist and someone who might or might not be an American carrying a gun, you get published. You recognize what I'm talking about. Do you think that agents and publishers should have the right to narrow the field of the kind of ideas that are coming into the world of literature in the way that they are doing? Are they qualified to? Because they all come from a very similar kind of class mm. background. Well, actually, I think, I mean, I think what you raised is an unbelievably important point, and it is about the sort of the white male Anglo-Saxon bias of... It's not just publishing, of course, you know, it's newspapers, it's television. Uh, Greg Dyke famously said that the BBC was hideously white. It is changing. I think the really key thing is that it is changing, and I could name... Well, there's a terrific black editor at Granta, for example, Ella Afri, who's just been given the OBE for her, her work, and there are, it is beginning to change. There is more diversity coming in. As I said, women dominate... Um, there's many more women than men in publishing, and you know, the five or six, five or six of the key, most pivotal players in publishing are now women and right the way up and down. And, and there is growing diversity. No, of course, you know, the white male Anglo-Saxons represented their own particular tastes and prejudices. But, you know, thankfully, at long last, that is definitely changing. And the Pakistan, interesting, the Pakistan issue of Granta, they say, was their most successful ever, which is very, I think is very surprising and, you know, pretty encouraging, really. Well, I, I just uh, I agree very much with what Andrew said. There's another angle to this that I would also comment on. I mean, I think <coughs> a, a, a broader set of issues about... I mean, people have argued that the kind of, you know, corporate power in the industry that I've been talking about has produced a narrowing down of the kind of material that you have in the, in the world of the book. Um, and, I th you know, it's not possible to argue that in a simple and straightforward way because it's gone hand in hand with the proliferation of the number of books that are being published every year more than ever before. But I think there is some truth to it. And the, the, truth, is, the truth is this. The truth is that, yes, more and more things are getting published. That's true. Lots of stuff is available. You can self-publish. You know, the numbers are going up all the time. But the space of what is visible is shrinking. That's what's shrinking. That is, what books you see in the supermarkets, in the, in the retail chains, and so on, it's the same things. Or you look in the review pages, it's the same things reviewed over and over and over again. So the space of the visible is shrinking, even though the number of different books being published is more than ever before. And so there is a certain kind of diversity in book culture. But there is a narrowing of literary culture in the sense that what we see and what, we, what we're exposed to is declining or is shrinking. So the fact that, yes, everything is available on Amazon, that's true. That's true. But attention gets focused. Attention is being focused in certain ways. And, and you know, the, you know the, we, we live in a, in a world of where, you know, information and content is abundant, more abundant than ever. But our our attention is scarce. And other mechanisms are focusing our attention in certain ways, like the reviews, like what gets repeatedly shown on the front tables of bookstores, and so on and so forth. That's where the narrowing happens. Okay, I've, I've got several more people queuing up, so I think one here. Well, 
My question was, uh, can I have your opinion about self-publishing? You just mentioned it, but many, many people are thinking about self-publishing, and I think it's, that's also a buzz going around. So, well, I, 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 Andrew, why don't you go ahead? I would never do it myself. <laughs> I mean, I think self-publishing, um, well, you do it for yourself. I mean, I think the very first, the, the prefix of those two words precisely explains the problem. Is for your, you won't reach a wide audience. If, I think there's a whole series of different reasons why people write. But if, if you want to be published, if you want to reach the widest possible audience, then, then it's only a preliminary, and it can be a good preliminary stage to being effectively published and marketed. I think it comes exactly back to John's really important point. You know, it's about the, it's about the scarcity of attention, the, the huge availability of things and the scarcity of attention. And you, it's very difficult to generate attention from self-publishing. Although, from time to time, publishers will pick up self-published books. It's, it's quite a good filter in the absence of an agent for publication. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, th I think the, 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 you know, when people wonder what is the role of a publisher in this changing world, when you can just publish yourself or just put your novel on your website, you know, um, that's true. You can, you can do that. But this is publishing in a certain sense. This is publishing in the sense of making it available for others. But publishing in the sense of getting others to notice what you're making available is a very different matter. And that's where publishers come in. Because you know, publishers' job, in essence, is to make markets in a world, as I said before, where content is abundant and attention is scarce. They, they have to bring people to you into your work. Just putting it up there. I mean, there's so much online. Who's going to notice? It's just going to be lost. But what publishers do is they make people notice your output, your work, that's their job. And if they don't do that well, then they're not doing very much. Okay, I have another question here, Guy in the black shirt. Thank you. Um, just a very uh, quick question about, I'm, I'm interested in the rather gray zone between popular fiction and literary fiction, to use so two unfortunate distinctions. But um, I'd be interested to hear, particularly the publishers, uh, the publishing perspective on what, what causes a, uh, a book to sort of break out, as it were. I'm thinking of one like Life of Pi, which you know, stands head and shoulders above many of the other Booker Prize winners in recent years in terms of volumes of, of, of copies sold. Um, I'm just interested in that, and what, what, what makes the quote-unquote literary novel um, break out occasionally, others like you know, English Patient and others that achieve unusual success? Well, I think, I think you've asked two separate questions. You've asked why are some books more successful than others, which is an imponderable question. If we knew the answer, our life would be very simple. Except that I would say, and I think John might agree, that the publisher has a real play, role to play, and that the publisher of Life of Pi did a much better job by uh, Jan Martel than the publisher who published the Booker Prize winner the year before. And they're both comparable size publishers, so it was interesting to see, and, and they're not, you know, there's books, they're not a million miles apart. And one publisher, I think, did a much better job in publishing in the true sense of disseminating and spreading the book than, than the other. What differentiates the literary from the commercial novel is, you know, is a question which exercises many um, the greatest minds in many of the English departments in every university in the country. And, and it's not really, I think, for publishers to... I mean, publishers make those claims, and the publisher's claim is some part of the way that the book is presented and then, and then the claim to which it's given and when it's categorised. But I don't think 
I don't think sales success is any way to measure between commercial and, and literary fiction. I mean, I think it's very interesting. The number one paperback bestseller at the moment, for example, is Emma Donoghue's Room. Is that a commercial book? Is it a, a literary book? I mean, you know, it's, it's certainly a very interesting and significant book which makes great claims. It's just for the reader to decide, I think. And the, the publisher's job is to present it in the way which it will be most effectively, uh, most widely disseminated, widely read, and widely talked about. I have one more here, if I can. Second row there. And then I've spotted one more question, and then I think we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, just a really quick question. There was a comparison with the music industry there, and the music industry was revolutionized by the whole um, internet um, availability. And um, I mean, it's true that it's still the same kind of rubbish that makes it in the top 40, but um, and that's still a very narrow focus that hasn't changed very much, which is kind of what you were saying about uh, the bestseller list not changing by the electronic availability. But um, for music, lots less people consume top 40 music. The market has just been more fragmented. Isn't that an, a possibility of something that might be happening in the book market? Oh, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, the, there are, it just has to be said that there, are, there is no clear answer to a question like this. There simply is not. And, you know, I've spent 10 years studying this industry and talking to so many people in it. And, the opinions vary enormously on the likely impact of what I just showed you there, the, the digital revolution. No one knows what the impact is going to be. Now, it, it should, you know, the, there is a great temptation, and there are many people in the industry who look over their shoulders at what happened in the music industry and say, that is the publishing industry foretold it's going to go exactly the same way as the music industry did, and it's going to basically topple or cause enormous financial difficulties for the large publishing houses and so on and so forth. That's probably an overly apocalyptic view. Um, there is something that's very different about books from music, and that is that, that many people value books because they are cultural artifacts. They, are, they like the physicality of the book, and so there are many people who like reading from a physical book and whereas music you know listened to in, in you know, when it's been um, when it's been encoded electronically is is probably higher fidelity than listening to an lp but many people like the physicality of the book also books are not things that you can break down in the way you can break down song you know an lp into songs and just choose whichever songs you want to often books are an integrated whole you go from the beginning to the end so there are many differences between books and music in that respect and my own feeling is that and this alludes to something that, that Andrew said, is that what, you, what we will see happening in, in the book industry is, is you will see this kind of dramatic growth of e-books. But it won't totally eliminate the importance and role of the physical book. You will have both alongside one another, in much the way that you have audiobooks alongside physical books, although probably e-books will become more significant, at least in the United States. Um, so I think you will, you'll have a fragmented and differentiated world um, where certain genres are going to be read increasingly in electronic 
formats like romance being a perfect example because people don't necessarily want to accumulate all those romance Barnes and you know, Mills and Boone books. You know, they just want to get on to the next one. Whereas other books, maybe more literary fiction or a, a, a biography of someone who they value or someone who matters a lot to them, they want to have as a book that they can put on their shelf, displays their identity, who they are, they can give it to a friend or lend it to a friend and so on and so forth. So I think we're likely to see this more um, fragmented, differentiated world in which the physical book lives alongside e-books and e-book reading. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I don't think we, we have no idea, and I, can, yeah, well, I think that makes very good sense. On that point, good. we agree. <laughs> <laughs> have one, no, have one, do you want to do one really quick question? Is this going to be our last one? When I put my hand up, I didn't know it was going to be a very quick question. It, it, I'll try. Um, it was just the way that John described what goes on inside the publishing industry. I have no idea. So if I take some of what you said at face value, with everything else, it seems that what's going on is a battle for ideas within an ecosystem that then has a competition, the winners, the, the same advantages within that ecosystem work in the real world. So all I'm saying is, are you, are you sure that it's because they're concentrating on their marketing or simply because the ideas that will sell that book help sell the book within the publishing first? Because you buy a book, if you go into a bookshop and you look, you've only got half a page to read on the back. You know, you're talking about 15 pages being sold. That seems remarkably more, more complete than the half page that I see if I go into Waterstones. Yeah. Well, but, but, but your, your experience when you're going into Waterstones has already been shaped by all of these processes that I very sketchily um, described for you. Very, very sketchily, because I did it in 25 minutes. Okay, so it was very, very fragmentary. But it's already been shaped by all that. Because when you go into Waterstones, those books are on the front table. Why are they on the front table? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why is it like that? You know? They're on the front table because someone's put it, paid a lot of money to get it on the front table. And why did they spend a lot of money to put it on the front table? Because you go back historically, it was a big book. They spent a lot of money on that book, etc. So your experience is the consumer, is the reader, even though you've got only that little bit on the back of it's already been pre-shaped by the structures of the industry in the field that have generated that which you are seeing when you walk into Waterstones. This is this is the precondition of your experience. So that's what I would say in response. You, you, in a, you as the reader are in a completely different position. You have already, I mean, the, the, all these processes have taken place before you experience the book, and your experience of it is shaped by these processes. Okay, I think I have to wrap up here, and I'd like to address the people who came here hoping to find out how to write a bestseller. I think there are some events within this whole uh, literary uh, few days at the weekend which may help you out. I hope that you haven't been disappointed in what you've heard this evening. I think we've had two really interesting speakers, and I understand there's a, a bar outside. We can all have a drink, and you can continue this conversation either with my speakers or not, but I'd like you to join me in thanking them very much.